I'm here with John, and today we're going to do an Augustinian look at knowledge and the Trinity. And just a, a kind of rundown then of how perhaps a legitimate and illegitimate understandings of uh, human knowing occur, and how this then relates to our understanding of God. And I think, John, you're working with a couple of works here to do this, but you're, uh, is it uh, Chavara that is your main reference? Yeah, for talking about Augustine on a theory of knowledge. Uh, Chavara is the only reference that I've really encountered doing anything like this, so I don't know. I have to admit my ignorance. I don't know how standard what he's saying is or that anybody else even approaches a theory of knowledge in Augustine. Well, let's, uh, to, to start with, uh, he, he has these categories of knowledge, and, and he's trying to break it down, and, and saying that he finds all four in Augustine or Augustine. I guess we need to decide how, who, how we're going to say this. Um, but uh, I, actually, the first three, the illegitimate or what he's thinking are the inadequate forms, I think it's quite interesting to get those out on the table and see then what we're trying not to do in uh, what it is we're claiming when we say that we know anything. Hmm. Yeah. So he, um, in going through what he is calling either a theory of knowledge or nociology, this is Shavara, he distinguishes four main categories and he is already doing something different than what he would just call epistemology. So epistemology may be for him as a sub-discipline in philosophy, studying what do humans know about knowing, something like that. Uh, well, a nociology or a theory of knowledge, at least for Shavara, is not a theory necessarily just about what are humans doing when they are knowing, but rather uh, about human knowledge in more of an abstract sense. And so, so that's the way he approaches this. It's not just a phenomenology. Yes. And, and I realize, I, mean, I don't know how somebody, you ask people to define epistemology, you may get several different definitions. But Well, and that's, uh, the idea is that uh, uh, he's describing then, and I think in particular, a modernist understanding of knowing may enter into this. And, and isn't that what he seems to be consciously uh, uh, over against. Yes, so uh, the three theories of knowledge that he finds illegitimate or lacking are all from Descartes and on historically. So first is the Cartesian uh, way of knowing, which he will talk about merely as sort of a uh, pre-knowledge. There is no theory of knowledge for Descartes. He just starts with systematic doubting and then wants to ground his knowledge on that. But human knowledge as a concept is not necessarily discussed there. And then he moves on to what he calls an absolute theory of knowledge that he locates an example of that's most full or complete in Immanuel Kant and then has a dialectical theory of knowledge which he uses Hegel and Hegelian philosophy to describe. And so with, uh, there is a kind of naive uh, understanding in Descartes that, in, in a sense, that I, I've always appreciated a Cartesian summation of the presumption that is occurring uh, in human knowing, 
uh, this is, you know, Zizek and Lacan, they would both consciously claim to be Cartesian. And, of course, not in any modernist notion, oh, that some sort of naive understanding of, you know, that you're grounding, but in, in the sense that they understand the Kantian critique of Descartes, and that critique is, well, you have the thinking thing, and you have the thought, and the two are completely removed from one another. And, of course, this is, in a sense, the departure of Kant and Hegel. But what Zizek would say to that understanding is, yes, that's, that's correct, that you have two things completely removed from one another, and this is a complete uh, fabrication. It's a primordial lie, and this is the supposition that is necessary uh, in order for human beings to know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in other words, it is kind of the end point. He's skipping over uh, post-modernity. You know, postmoderns, you know, would come along and they would say, "Well, wait a minute. This isn't. You know, you can't do this." And so, postmodernity is a kind of deconstruction and and an objection to a modernist knowing. And what Zizek is saying, yeah, yeah, but get over it. Let's mm-hmm. let's move on. And I think what you're describing is that Zizek rightly sees the postmodern theory of knowledge, if there is one, as being actually just very Kantian in the end. That there, yeah, there's no uh, that uh, in in a sense he finds uh, you know uh, Derrida repetitive, and he's just always doing the same thing. After he died, I think that was the one time that Zizek came out with a complimentary article. <laughs> Derrida. But, but people who have spent their careers uh, reading Derrida, uh, his point is, yeah, but you just, oh, we already know that. We got that. There's mm-hmm. a problem. But uh, the, the thing that I like that he's doing is saying that the primordial, you know, lie that is necessary to human subjectivity is precisely what is needed uh, in order to know. Now, you can, you can point out, as in a Kantian framework, that the thinking thing is, in fact, unapproachable. But, of course, what he's doing is, is saying yes, and that's, that, that's the, the death drive. And this is the, mm-hmm. So it is a kind of nihilistic, destructive, uh, understanding, which I think is helpful to get out there. In other words, we're, we're, we've passed through modernity. We recognize there's this Kantian problem. But let me, let me catch you, have you catch us up. What is Chavara saying then about a Kantian and Hegelian understanding? Well, for all three of these uh, inadequate theories of knowledge, mainly the problem, of course, is that knowledge is in some way objectified uh, at least by the thinking thing, is an out-there type of system. Of course, Shavara will give his own reading that says, no, what's really going on in each of these is there's an absolute authority given to reason that's located within the, su- within the self or the subject. And he says that what's most dangerous about this, of course, is that each of these forms is actually really true about Descartes, Kant, and Hegel, is you have a type of religious substrate that comes from, stems from, or actually maybe stands behind the theories of knowledge that are there. And it's the same in each case. 
that in some way the individual, the human subject, is the one who holds knowledge of everything or the ability to know everything. Good and evil, um, if we were talking about ethics, existence, if we're talking about Hegel. Um, and in this way, that it's almost just a recapitulation of Old Testament idolatry. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's, of course, what my work has been on, is that uh, given the legitimacy of what Zizek and Lacan are doing, there is then a, a, a placement of the human subject. And, of course, for them, that's the end of the story. There's really nothing more to be said other than, well, we can manipulate this and we can uh, make the best we can. Uh, because Zizek is not willing then uh, to go on and give us a Romans 8 or salvific notion. He, in his uh, clinging to atheism, there's not an alternative understanding. But I, I think you almost have to arrive at where he's at to understand, okay, well, we're in desperate need or in need of an alternative knowing over and against a modernist understanding. And this is what you're trying or what your your reading of Chavar's reading of the fourth kind of knowing mm-hmm. would amount to. So then he turns to what he calls a methodological theory of knowledge, and we'll end up locating this in Augustine as the full theory of knowledge that Augustine had as a Christian. Uh, as he's, I mean, he's actually a Christian at points when he's holding these other views as well, but he's growing as we all do. And a methodological theory of knowledge would be one that rather than seeing knowledge as a concept that uh, stands as other to us and in some way can be viewed objectively, is actually the sphere of existence that we live in. So knowledge is not a thing, but knowledge, or true knowledge, truth, is God. And we exist and move and live within God. And as we do that, then, it's a methodological theory because we're, and he goes back and does an etymology of the word methodological, we're on the way. Hodos is the Greek word for way that stands in the word methodology. And we are coming to knowledge along the way, and true knowledge along the way as we become true followers of Christ. And that's the shift in theories of knowledge that Shavara is tracing in Augustine's theology in this chapter of his work, The Analogiantis, and also the shift that, of course, he thinks as Christians we need to be taking. He's writing this in the 1930s. And he's not quite convinced that Roman Catholicism or Protestantism has really acknowledged the problems that come along with modernity. And in that sense, I mean, if, if he's so much ahead of his time uh, in in recognizing the problems in modernity. It seems like uh, that I'm wondering who in the world is left to read him. That no yeah. one's going to appreciate what he's doing, but it seems like he's just now, uh, there is this deep appreciation for what Chabarro was attempting. Yes, the work that I'm referencing has actually only been translated into English recently. And how long has Chabarro, uh, he's left us some years ago, right? Yes, yeah, so he uh, died young, and I think he died in the 19, either the late 40s or early 50s. Yeah, yeah. So, 
Uh, I mean, the, the truth is uh, is the way. I mean, that just resonates, of course, with Kierkegaard. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think it also then uh, resonates with uh, a kind of Romans 8 understanding. Uh, give, us a, give us a bit of a rundown then of, of the methodological system you're describing. Okay, well, actually, and that's the interesting thing about it, uh, it's almost as if less is more. So unlike the other theories of knowledge, there is no system of knowledge or system of existence for the methodological theory because it's one in which we live and take our existence from. But it does preclude a different type of religious substrate so that with the others, you might imagine that salvation itself um, for, say, somebody like Hegel, salvation is something that is coming, it's spirit, it's going to be absolute when we have it. Uh, That is not there, of course, in a methodological theory of knowing, nor was it uh, there perhaps in some of Augustine's theology. That could be highly debatable. But at least what this theory of knowledge is advocating for would be a return to thinking of theology, not theology, return to thinking of salvation, Christianity, in terms of deification. So a process by which the human individual through community, the community of God, is partaking of the divine nature. And as one partakes of the divine nature, one grows and becomes more and more Christian. So that if we were thinking simply in terms of Jesus' question to Peter, who do you say that I am? And of course, Peter gives him an answer. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. What that meant to Peter that day, obviously, as we read the rest of the Gospels, wasn't a fully worked out understanding of either of those terms and what that meant for him. But if we follow the tradition, by the end of Peter's life, he has served the church and he is going to die very much in the same way that Christ did. He understands what Christ's lordship, messiahship, uh, meant fully in that sense within the context of a kingdom. But that's a process or that's a different world that he has lived in a sense, and that's what grace does for us. So I think in Augustine's work, if we're going to talk about deification, what is there is very vague. But as he's picked up in the Middle Ages by people like Thomas Aquinas, what's being worked out is a way of talking about grace where the end point or the main point of grace isn't simply a healing of human sin, because that would just be a response to, or that's how God's one plan economy responds to human fallenness. But it's still that one economy that we're focused on, and so how does the incarnation fit there? Well, grace much more than is a way of elevating humanity into a relationship with God that is continuously becoming more full. And so there, uh, the primary characteristic is seemingly one of humility in regard to how one knows. Yes, especially I, how one knows God. And I assume that, that when you're talking about deification, I mean, uh, the, a couple of things that uh, we normally don't associate uh, August, Augustine's understanding with the notion of deification, but make the case for us there. Uh, why, why would we put uh, why would we say that he's, in, in fact, claiming something on the order of the mm-hmm. Perhaps uh, it's a weak case because Augustine actually doesn't use the one verse in Scripture that seems to 
be advocating for deification most, that in Second Peter 1, 4. And he doesn't use it because the Pelagians are using it. Uh-huh. And so that it's always hard to read Augustine because we have to know what he's arguing against. But he does, more than any other Latin writer of that time, use the word deificare, which is where, of course, we get our English word deification from. And even in works like De Trinitate, where a lot of people have just read it and thought, oh, here's proto-Cartesianism, a very careful reading will show that actually Augustine is showing how even the analogies that he's coming up with are ones that transform. And as they transform, what is being known isn't so much God, but who the human individual is before God. And he's very careful to distinguish between how that analogy might function or what a human being might be psychologically before justification and then after justification. And of course, then in the final chapters of the work, he questions any of his analogies. And the movement of the work then is one that is uplifting and trying to take the human individual that reads the work or is in any way contemplating Christianity along those lines and have them be more transformed into the image of God at the end than when they started. And so you can tease out then the methodological theory of knowledge, even in a work like De Trinitate. And all you mean by methodological here uh, and by deification, see if um, and help us to understand the, the process. I'm just thinking participation. Well, that's the scriptural justification of, of course, Peter's uh, verse, something along the lines of, we have become partakers of the divine nature. And I think we can explain that a little bit more fully, but what is being said is that we are truly participating in the life of the Trinity. God is the end and the cause of who we are. So he is moving us towards an existence that is more like his, but we have to be very careful to say, Uh, how that works. So it's not as if we become in substance like God. We're always going to be finite. We're always going to be mortal and rely on God for life. But we do begin to partake of the divine nature, as Peter says. And so this is the divine nature, of course, that was in the person of Christ. And in the same way, early atonement theories revolved around this idea of salvation. Salvation not being just an overcoming of sin, because what the early Christians realized, and what you know, a good majority of theologians are saying today also, is that salvation doesn't just remove the problem, which might be sin, death, and evil, because then we would still only be left as finite humans in need of a relationship with God, the creator and sustainer of all things. So in a very real way, the incarnation is about binding together human nature and divine nature so that we might, through Christ, be able to participate in the divine nature, even as Christ had joined these two natures together in his life. So it's a whole new way of existing that's being communicated to us through, of course, uh, prayer and service and uh, living the Christian life. So the salva- yeah, salvation... Uh, is not just uh, souls going to heaven, but what is you're getting in an Eastern Orthodox understanding, and you're saying in Augustine also, mm-hmm. is then a, a an alternative epistemology, an alternative way of knowing that actually as a Christian, we recognize that how we know 
and maybe, maybe I'm saying this, maybe we need to nuance this in such a way, that there is actually two systems of knowing. Mm-hmm. Um, and isn't that what's presented to us in Scripture? You know, this is the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and I think Augustine re- uh, references the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if I, I, I I'm actually uh, thinking of a secondary work here, but he refers to it in a way that's very similar to what Derrida is doing as just something on the order of a circulating, circulating system mm. of signs. Yes. Yeah. Uh, that, in other words, what he's recognizing, what postmoderns are recognizing, uh, is that this this one fallen way of knowing is itself then always going to bear the same characteristics, uh, the characteristics of uh, a dualism, and of course that's an incorrect way of describing it. It's a supposed or, pre, you know, the idea is that there mm. is an apparent dualism. And this is Derrida's whole point. Well, yeah, but it's identity through difference. But the notion is that there's an absolute difference. But, of course, there's no such thing as an absolute difference. And so the difference collapses into a sameness. Mm-hmm. And so the system is inherently uh, destructive. Well, yeah, I think an oversimplified way of saying that would be to simply say that a fallen theory of knowledge privileges knowledge over existence, whereas a methodological theory is saying, well, knowledge only comes through existence. So that in the fall, you know, that you'll know, and in knowing you'll be like God, that epistemology or knowing leads to, is a way of, of, of obtaining being or ontology, mm-hmm. which it describes not just a, a philosophical or religious understanding, but to my mind, that is the mo that is the the impetus behind human desire. What is it that we desire? You know, this is Kierkegaard in a sense. Well, ultimately, we desire being. We desire mm-hmm. we desire life, and if you desire life, that means you don't have it. That means that it's absent, and so you're panting after the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you're panting after life uh, and already because you've been deprived of it. And I'm, and I'm referencing there the, the scene in, in the garden. Uh, but I think you could also then go to a comparison between Romans 7 and 8. And am I right that, that Chavara consciously references Romans 8 in this? Uh, that uh, I'm trying to remember. <laughs> okay, maybe uh, that is uh, that. Uh, what is happening there? I think what is happening in Romans seven is that here is Paul's breakdown of the system of human knowing. Uh, I think you've got Descartes already in Romans seven. Mm-hmm. You've got a Cartesian system. Now that just goes against every. You know, whoa, well, I thought Descartes was modern. Well, no, I think that Descartes captures, he encapsulates uh, what I would take to be a universal kind of uh, mode. The presumption is, whether it's conscious or unconscious, that uh, knowing is in some way uh, centered in 
the I, centered in the self. And of course, what you find in Paul is what Kant is saying, that once you center knowing within the self, there's inevitably a split. There's inevitably the thinking thing and the thought. Paul says, you know, he pits the law of the mind over and against the the law of the flesh, that these two things are in contrast to one another. And so all you're doing is, is, is what it seems to be happening is that uh, here is the ramification of uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or here is the ramification of an anthropocentric knowing. But it's necessarily, if we're going to do this thing, if we're going to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, it is the kind of yin-yang sort of dualism in which the good inheres in the evil and the evil inheres in the good. That is, there really is no good and evil difference. But those differences collapse. Uh, and so I think it's already there in Scripture. Here is the frame of one sort of knowing, and then the departure is Romans 8, which is a description of being found in the Son, being clothed in Christ, crying out, Abba, Father, in and through the gift of the Holy Spirit. That is the Romans 8, you know, if you don't want to call it deification, well, it certainly is participation. Mm -hmm. Well, it actually, yeah, in Romans 8, you have the model of deification. We will be co-heirs with Christ. We're included in the, as adopted uh, in a way that isn't possible apart from a lived out salvation. And I think what also comes along with that, with the deification and as in Romans eight is a different type of eschatology. So that in both ways, how is desire transformed into something that's for God? Well, it's eschatological in the sense that we begin to live in the kingdom. Now we already have access to the fruits of that kingdom life. We're living the resurrection life though it is still future, and all creation awaits actually for this future to be completely realized and revealed in all of its splendor. And that's in Romans 8, and that's also what deification is looking forward to, the idea that we can participate in God now and that this is a continuous ongoing process, that as we come together as the community of believers, we truly are with God. Um, And that's a picture then of what, the full reality will be with the second coming of Christ. But I can imagine somebody uh, coming along and saying, well, you've said a lot about illegitimate forms, but everything you're saying about uh, knowing or participation in Christ, uh, it, it doesn't sound like you, it doesn't sound like you've nailed this down in any way. And I'm wondering then you appeal, I think a little bit to Lonergan in this. Hmm. Yeah, And I'm wondering if that might be a way of putting a little more flesh on the, what we're talking about. Well, in Lonergan's early work, he, this is a way of arguing for the necessity of some kind of deification of salvation. In his early work, he's talking about grace and freedom and starts with Augustine and then moves to Aquinas. And then he begins to talk specifically just about the supernatural order, which is a reference to the theorem of the supernatural that Philip the Chancellor discovers a way of putting this in the 13th century. And he's the Chancellor of the University of Paris. And what 
he realizes is that we can talk about a natural order and a supernatural order as two distinct things, though the supernatural doesn't, as many will later suppose, it doesn't abolish the natural to work with it. It's simply the possibilities that only God can give, but those aren't something that's just super added on, nor does it abolish the natural, but it transforms the natural. So he's talking about uh, what would it mean to be created humans? Well, as humans, qua humans, we have a limited amount of possibilities for our existence and what we can be. And those don't include a full knowledge of God or even a participation in God. God provides that. So think of the Genesis account. Humans are never created immortal, but humans are created mortal with access to God for life. Humans are created in such a way that their knowledge isn't perfect. The early church authors, Irenaeus, for example, will say humanity was created immature and needed to grow up. And that's sort of what is being described here by the theory of the supernatural. But then what grace does, it's a gift. It's a uh, communication of God to us that is completely a gift, a created communication of the divine nature is the phrase that Lonergan uses. It's created in the sense that it pertains to us who are created. So we're not going to gain the divine nature in such a way that we would literally become God but it will always be proportionate to our createdness. It is a communication because it's something that we don't have apart from God granting it, it's being grace or sanctifying grace, deifying grace. Um, and so God gives to us what, in any normative understanding, would only apply to him. And then it is, of course, a full participation in the divine nature who God is. That's supernatural because it's a way of transforming who we are as created people, but it's a way that requires God to act with us, both operating on who we are as humans and cooperating with who we are as humans. And what he's proving by elaborating on the theory of the supernatural is that our salvation can be spoken about in two different ways. It's just salvation by grace, but there is one aspect of salvation, which is to overcome sin, death, and evil. And that is because we have fallen or because in some way we have entered into an alienated relationship to God. Um, We don't even have what we would have as normal humans any longer, this possibility of some image and likeness of God to grow in. It's all turned completely inward. It's perverted. It's bent, not completely broken, but twisted. That is automatically taken care of by the incarnation because God's demonstrating that there can be this created connection between the divine and the human. But then the ministry of Christ, Christ's life, the part that sometimes gets skipped over, takes on uh, an infinitely amount of more importance in the sense that Christ, through his ministry, is creating a community for us to live in that is just saturated with grace in such a way that this is how we participate in deification, or is the Latin that Lonergan's using at this point is gratia elevens, elevating grace, that grace that takes us further than what our possibilities as mere humans would be. But in no way is this contradicting the natural order. It is simply changing and uplifting it. 
And this is what we see in Christ. So it's not that Christ is just a superhuman. He's not a superman. He is fully human. He's fully God. And what we see in him is the relationship of those two natures in one person. And that's offered to us in Scripture as we become adopted, the co-heirs with Christ. So it's telling that all throughout Scripture, our new identity is one that's fashioned in the image of Christ. In the same way, another level to add on to this would be the talking about image and likeness. Image and likeness pertains fully to Jesus, who is the image of God, his exact representation. What was Adam then? Well, Adam's the image and likeness that Adam is created in just prefigures the incarnation, which would have been necessary regardless of sin to lift Adam up into a fully mature human being. Um, and so the early church theories about sin and salvation usually just deal with sin in terms of we need to be set free from, ransomed from sin. It's something that has taken over us and Um, has definitely hindered us, but that's not the end of God's plan for creation, and it involves this aspect of everything being lifted up and created fully in the image of God. And what you're describing is this, uh, it's uh, uh, uniquely Eastern Orthodox, isn't it? Well, this is actually uniquely uh, to Thomas Aquinas, what Lonergan's dealing with, but the Orthodox do much the same thing in a different context. So the uh, what you're getting away from uh, in several things is the notion of a return to Eden or a return mm-hmm. to as if what was lost was the, the full potential of creation was to be found there in the garden. And, of course, the idea is that not that the goodness that is pronounced upon that is a completeness or that the telos is realized. And so it does several things. It recognizes that uh, even apart from the fall, that the thing that occurs in Christ was always the plan for creation. It's not an emergency Mm -hmm. measure that is put upon creation. Yeah, God doesn't have plan A and plan B. And uh, that it also then uh, brings a positive aspect then, uh, a depth of understanding uh, in in several senses. In other words, it's not, oh, we, we have this disease and now we're cured of the disease. It's that Christ gives us access to a depth of understanding that would not otherwise be available to Mm -hmm. us. Yeah, I think that's right. So not to go completely off our topic, but in simply comparing atonement theories, uh, ransom theory is the early church theory is the most vague, but maybe that's a good thing in a way that it really allows for uh, most of the biblical metaphors to fit under this idea of ransom. What was proposed much later by Gustav Allen as the early church view, Christus Victor, just barely misses what ransom theory is adding to what he comes up with. So does ransom theory allow for Christ as being victorious over sin, death, and evil? Well, absolutely. The early church does talk that way. But for them, that's not the whole story. And as he tries to make Christus Victor into an atonement theory that's going to um, eclipse penal substitution, I mean, We should applaud him for uh, what he thought needed to be done, definitely. But 
just to say that sin, death, and evil are defeated doesn't actually accomplish the full plan of God, or the economy of God is not fully worked out there. And so I think that is what has usually been lost, in especially maybe the Latin church or in the Latin writers, as we seem to focus so much on redemption from sin and needing salvation from sin. And then that even gets perverted into salvation from hell in uh, some circles. Whereas uh, there's a fuller understanding. And that's, uh, and that's sort of the richness that you get, unfortunately, and is missing in, in much of, and, and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but, but, but in a uh, Eastern Orthodox, a Catholic, uh, an Anglican, uh, there is a developed theology uh, that is attempting then to describe the depth of understanding that's made available to us mm-hmm. in Christ that in, in a Protestant nominalism, and of course nominalism is not just a Protestant mm-hmm. problem, but it's almost as if nominalism in some way is definitive. Uh, yes. Go ahead and correct me. Well, no, I think you're right. So in, well, and we probably should say that in Catholicism, that this is there, it was definitely latent. Mm-hmm. So that uh, for the majority of the history, uh, throughout the scholastic period till modern times, Catholicism was mirroring a type of Occamist nominalism as well. But um, what that seems to mean pertaining to this conversation is that salvation, especially the doctrine of justification being under salvation, is completely talked about in forensic terms. And then... Let, let me let's say very quickly uh, what we mean by nominalism and and then the problem because I, I think this is a this is we're not departing from our original conversation. Mm-hmm. Well, nominalism is a theory of knowledge uh, of sorts. It's how do you know something? Well, you know a thing um, by what it is, by its name, what you call it, which is sort of uh, anti-metaphysics. So things don't exist in various degrees. Uh, Things cannot be described necessarily in degrees of truth or in degrees of fullness via analogy, but they either are or they are not. That's sort of the most simple way of talking about nominalism. Um, Go ahead. And and tell us then why that uh, is such a delimiting sort of thing in, in both uh, latently and uh, and explicitly mm-hmm. in, in theology. So starting off from Luther, Luther says, you know, do we know God? Can we know God? How do we know God? And he says, well, only the suffering God on the cross. But what that doesn't mean for Luther is a type of Christocentric knowledge that develops into a understanding or an entryway into understanding who God is. He literally means we either know the suffering God or the only other God that there is, is the hidden God, Deus Absconditus, which again, I mean, that already sounds rather Kantian that you don't know the real, you just know the phenomena. But, um, and so you could see the lineage there throughout Protestantism and throughout the tradition that gives us what we call modernity and whatnot. Uh, in terms of atonement theory and the doctrine of justification, eventually what that 
means is that when we're saved, well, Christ has died as a propitiation and we have imputed righteousness because we really are sinners and that's all we can be. So whatever the excess is has to be just purely theoretical, not something that is real as opposed to um, really any other better view of, (laughs) of justification is that, no, we are made righteous and we continue to be made righteous as we enter into a covenant relationship with God through his community. Well, at that point, we're talking about deification again. And, and so, so I think it goes by different names today. Right. There's biblical scholars and theologians working on the same thing. I mean, we, may, we might, or, or should we blame nominalism for views of justification and, you know, in which uh, that is more of a theoretical justification or a justification in the mind of God or an imputed righteousness. That uh, it, It's all of the part of the same sort of system. Yeah, I think so. So, and, and so the alternative is a full-blown entry into uh, a participation in which we can begin to say what salvation is in a present tense sort of way. Yes, so we've ceased to talk about things, to come full circle, we've ceased to talk about things as objects other than us when it comes to knowledge, salvation, truth. We're talking about reality. Reality isn't something that can be systematized as it's other than us, but rather we realize that we inhabit God's reality. We inhabit truth. We inhabit salvation. And this is the point of departure of the uh, the Nouvelle theology in in a Catholic understanding is that am I right? Yeah, and I know less about that, so I'm not going to be able to comment much. But in the same way um, that Lonergan is retrieving the idea of the theory of the supernatural, De Lubac is doing something similar. They're not uncritical of each other, and I'm not quite for sure where the differences lie. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. But the point is that uh, what you have in Chavara's reading of an Augustinian understanding is already that in uh, Augustine you have uh, an appreciation for uh, this alternative Christian knowing. Yes. And so granted, especially in like De Trinitate, that's not you can get muddled down in Augustine's brilliance to the extent that you begin to read everything he's saying as if he's talking about reality in sort of a univocal sense, but he's not. And I think it's better to realize the whole work sort of has this movement that he's wanting us to go on a journey. And the final few chapters especially seem to point towards this methodological theory of knowledge. Shavara's own point is that actually you could locate each of these stages of the theory of knowledge in Augustine's Christian thought, but that itself shows that he's growing, he's he's, moving. He's working. And now my my reading of this um, is that what you get then subsequent to Augustine is never quite as good and beginning, you know, I don't. I, I sound like I want to blame everything on Anselm of Canterbury. But just because he calls himself a little Augustine, or uh, that doesn't mean he really is. And and that's my reading of Anselm. 
is that he's reading De Trinitate, he's, he's looking at this mm-hmm. as a kind of individualized psychological understanding in which he's going to locate the workings of the Trinity all in the individual person. Yeah, and perhaps insulin is indicative of the time period so that um, during that period in the Middle Ages, scholasticism itself is struggling a lot to come to terms with how to explain God's grace, how to explain freedom, how to explain what Jesus was doing. And it's really not until Philip the Chancellor that there's the tools have been given back to people as they're thinking that they can speculate. And that's the difference between what Anselm's doing and what Augustine's doing. Augustine very much is just stating doctrines and trying to uh, explain the truth of the doctrine. Whereas during the scholastic period, much more are people trying to speculate on how doctrines fit together and do what we would now call systematic theology. And that is developing during that time period. So that I think by the time you get to Aquinas, he has more to work with than the people a few hundred years before him would have. And so there is just a clear uh, progress during the Middle Ages uh, leading up into the 12th century, 13th century rather, that is sometimes called a renaissance. You know, there's the 12th and 13th century renaissance, and I think it's because of uh, so much work was being put into especially talking about grace, and you don't see the flowering of that until Aquinas' own lifetime. And, I mean, it's always interesting to, to bring our conversation full circle to recognize that Descartes' favorite, you know, theologian is Anselm of Canterbury, and yeah. he particularly does not like Thomas Aquinas. Yes, yeah. So there definitely are two schools of thought. And, uh, and one we might call Christian. <laughs> uh and I, I don't mean to be completely facetious here, because I, I think that a, a lot of what is taking place, you know, is in, in, in the philosophical context, a philosophical frame of knowing, whether it's analytical philosophy or continental philosophy, that they're actually working in a tradition that uh, perhaps wouldn't recognize an Aquinas or wouldn't recognize mm-hmm. the gains that are made. Mm-hmm. In, in what you're describing as the early renaissance uh, but in fact are themselves entrapped in uh, a Cartesian mode yeah, or exactly. a Kantian mode John this has been great this has been wonderful uh, uh, appreciate the conversation I've, uh, uh, thank you alright we'll talk to you again